so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to have everyone with us uh, this Sunday. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I got to go to Cape Town, South Africa. Anybody been to Cape Town? A great place. Two of you have been there, and I'm sure you can attest how beautiful it is. Uh, so if you follow my wife and I on social media, you read her blog, you know that the number one thing that I want to do when I go to a new place is I want to go to the best restaurant in that city. I want to get the most local, authentic, uh, incredible food when I get there so that when I come back to New York, I can say New York has as good of everything else. Uh, so we went to Cape Town and we searched TripAdvisor for what is the best restaurant in Cape Town that we could afford. And the number one restaurant out of all of the 930 restaurants in Cape Town does not belong to a classically trained chef from Paris. It does not have a view of the ocean. It does not have a view of beautiful Table Mountain. It is in the middle of Lenga Township. Now, township is uh, a way uh, that is a word that they use to describe basically the hood. And the hood in South Africa is different than the hoods we got in America. The hood in South Africa, cats is getting kidnapped. And I'm, uh, I, I'm not about that kidnapped life. I've seen Taken, but uh, I don't think I have those special set of skills. And we pulled up, and I'm not going to front. I'm a G now, you know what I'm saying? But I still got a little suburbs left in me. So when we got there, I ran out of the car. I left my wife behind, and uh, I didn't leave my wife behind. But I was pretty scared of <laughs> what to expect. We get into the house, and it's uh, this beautiful woman named uh, Mama Nomande. And Mama Nomande basically has a family-style restaurant in her home. And she cooks for you just local, authentic dishes um, that she had been cooking for years and years and years and years. And every person who has gone there has left that restaurant saying, this is the most incredible food in all of Cape Town, South Africa. Now, it was incredible. At the end of the night, it was a phenomenal meal, and I see why it got number one. A woman asked Mama Nomande, hey, what are your plans in five years? All of the tourists in the room were thinking, hey, you're number one on TripAdvisor. We can get your Instagram, Instagram game popping, and we could take this thing global. We can double your size, triple your size. What do you want to do in five years? And Mama Nomande looked at her in the black of her eyes and said, in five years, I want to be doing exactly what I'm doing right now, welcoming people into my home and cooking them a delicious meal. Now, it hit me like a ton of bricks that the reason that she was number one out of 930 restaurants was because if you want good, authentic uh, cuisine that is not rushed, that is not hurried, that is the product of years and years and years of cooking, if you want the real thing, you go to her. I think that her restaurant surpassed everyone else's because everyone who has eaten her food knows that she is genuine and she is authentic and she has no plans to commercialize it and quadruple the size. She wants to welcome people into her own home. And I think the number one thing about her restaurant, which was so compelling, is you cannot compete with the real thing. You absolutely, you can have all the training in the world, you can have all of the views, uh, you can have the best sommelier, but you cannot compete with the real thing. Authenticity and substance. Now, I think what was most compelling about the life of Jesus was he was the real thing. Authenticity and substance followed him everywhere he went. 
I, I love this quote. I've used it a couple times, but I think this sums up Jesus' life in as good a way that I've ever heard it. It's from a man named John Gerstner. He says, in Jesus Christ, we see virtues combined that never anywhere else are combined. We see tenderness without weakness, strength without a milligram of harshness, humility without uncertainty. You see unbending convictions and yet complete and utter approachability. You see power without the slightest insensitivity. You see passion without the slightest prejudice. You see total integrity without any rigidity. Never unthinking, never a false word, never a misstep. What drew, what drew people to Jesus' life uh, in droves was the authenticity and the substance in which he lived in communion with people and communion with the Father. Now, this is really interesting because what God is after in your life is to make you more like Jesus. The primary goal of God, the primary goal of God's Spirit active in the life of anyone who has placed their faith in Christ is that you would be made to be more like Christ. And that's our goal for us at Renaissance. Uh, we want us to be created more and more in the image of, of God. Uh, I'd even argue that God wants you to be more like Jesus than you want to be more like, than you want to be like Jesus. God wants your growth more than you want your growth. This is God's primary objective, so much so that we see the scripture, Romans 8 and 29. This is why God, this is what God is after in your life. It says, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, predestined is a big word. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but it basically means set in motion, that God has set things in motion in your life so that the primary goal and objective will be that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, that word conform means the same essence or the same nature. It doesn't just mean that you would behave like him, but it means that you would start to, from the inside out, develop the characteristics, the relationship that Jesus had with the Father. Now, how God does that is not linear. I think this is one of the biggest misunderstandings in Christianity and Christendom. How does God go about taking you from here to there? What is God's process and methodology to make you more like Christ? Now, first we know that this is not an immediate thing. This is not uh, an overnight thing. Um, uh, it is a gradual process that God is doing in our lives to make us more like Christ. Now, there's a number of tools that God uses in his tool belt. One of those tools is scripture. Um, scripture is something that God uses to cut away things in our life. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures comes from Hebrews 4 and 12. And the way it describes scripture is that it is, it is alive and active. And here's what it says. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Scripture is alive and it cuts away things in us that are not like Christ. And in a lot of ways, what scripture is saying is you don't read it, it reads you. And as a part of the process, uh, scripture is, a, is a, ma a major, major thing that uh, you and I become more and more like Christ. Uh, I, can, I can't even count how many times uh, I have been deeply, deeply impacted by a well-timed scripture that spoke exactly to my situation, and it literally set my life in motion in a different direction. Another thing that God uses in addition to scripture are key relationships. 
people that have come into your life, some for a season, some for a lifetime, but these people play pivotal roles in your life to help you see things that you probably can't see because we all have blind spots. Now, some of these people are people that you were looking for and a friend, and others are people that you probably don't have too much in common with, but God still has an assignment on their life to help you become more like Christ. Uh, I've used uh, this example a number of times about a dear friend of mine that I met all the way back in college. Um, I can trace back almost every major spiritual uh, advancement in my life, and I can tie that directly into our friendship and our relationship over the years. More importantly, every pivotal moment in my life where I have grown, where I've seen God's uh, spirit working inside of me, it, it has always, always, always been in a season that I was walking closely with someone who knew me, who can uh, confront me in some areas, who can challenge me, who can encourage me. God uses people in so many ways. And one of the things that I think people miss out on um, is that we're looking for friends and God is looking for people to help sharpen you. Now, another thing, yes, we got one person right here. Y'all could, could say amen, man. Y'all can say amen. Y'all don't have to sit there on your hands. So God uses scripture and God uses people. But the scripture that we're looking at today, we're going to spend some time in, uh, in looking at, is God doesn't just use scripture. God doesn't just use people. God also, in, in, in addition to those things, God also uses things. Uh, so we see the scripture, Romans 8 and 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Things. Uh, in order to conform you into the image and likeness of Jesus, uh, to make you the real thing, not just an imitation or a copy, God uses situations. God uses circumstances. God uses occurrences in your life in order to make you more and more like Christ. Now, sometimes it's a situation that as soon as it happens, you know that this is going to be a defining moment in my life. For you, some of people, it's a, a major uh, uh, a mistake that they've made in their career, and they're at a fork in the road where they could either fess up and, uh, uh, and own up and probably take a hit financially and career-wise, or they can lie. And that situation is going to do something to you. How you navigate that will set you on a different course and a different trajectory in life. Other times, it's not a major thing. It's a series of very minor and almost mundane circumstances that when you add them all up together, you can look back and say, wow, in all of these things, God was working together. Now, this does not say, we're going to get to this a little bit later, this does not say that God wanted all of these things or that God caused all of these things, but rather to say that in all of these things, God is working. Now, here's the thing about the things that we're talking about, we're going to look at today, these circumstances that God uses. You need these things in your life. Uh, I'm reminded of a story about a guy named Peter, and Peter was a close follower of Jesus. And by every single notion of the, world, of the word, Peter had the best teacher in the history of the planet. He had Jesus. Peter had the best community group ever been assembled, handpicked apostles by Jesus. And still, even though he had the word of God teaching him about God, even though he had a handpicked set of apostles to walk alongside with, there were some things in Peter's life that did not happen until circumstances 
came in and helped shape him in a specific way. What am I talking about? Jesus tells Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would fail you not. And after you have been strengthened, after you've been converted, go and strengthen your brothers. What's Jesus getting at? Peter, there is going to be a circumstance that is going to shake you. And essentially, sifting wheat was a shaking process to get to the very core of the substance. What scripture is saying here is there is going to be a circumstance that is going to shake you and rustle you in such a way that it's going to get you down to your core. And after that circumstance, go and strengthen your brothers. Even though he had Jesus as his teacher and the apostles as his community, there still needed to be circumstances in his life for Peter to be able to do what God wanted in his life. So God uses things and situations and circumstances to make us more like Jesus. Now, this is huge for a number of reasons, because you and I approach the world with a set of glasses on. And even if you have 20-20 vision, you and I have lenses by which we interpret everything that happens in our life. Whenever something happens in your life, you are interpreting it through a set of lenses. Now, one of the lenses that many of us have is that everything that should come to my life should, in some way, make sense to me. And if that's the lens that you have in your life, when something comes in that doesn't make sense, it will seem foreign and out of place. What Scripture is telling us here uh, is that the lens that you and I should have, that we, that we can see the world through, is that God, in all circumstances, is working. If we have placed our faith in Christ, God is working these situations, yes, including that one, to make you more like Jesus. So we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I just want to walk through the scripture phrase by phrase and, and just dig out all of the meat in this because if you've been to church more than six times, you've probably heard this scripture. Uh, and a lot of you have heard this scripture misapplied really insensitively to really harsh seasons in your life. And I apologize uh, for that. Um, I, I think that there's so much tremendous beauty in the scripture um, that's not meant to be neatly laid over uh, tragedy in your life. Um, I, one thing I've discovered in life, uh, personally, in my own times of grief, is that other people can't handle your suffering. It says a whole lot more about them than it does about you. So whenever you're unhappy, people can't tolerate you being un unhappy, so they rush to just hurry up and try to fix, fix you as quickly as possible instead of sitting in the ashes with you. Uh, and if that's happened, they might have thrown the scripture in your direction, and it might have felt foreign to you. But what I hope uh, we're going to get today is not a trite or just random covering up of, uh, of life, but rather something that's really meaningful. So Paul starts off this verse with two really powerful words. He says, we know. What do you know? Like, what can you say with certainty that this is something that I know? The things that you really, really know never come from something that someone just randomly told you, but rather the things that we truly and deeply know within the core of our being are things that you and I have experienced. I bet you can only say with certainty whatever you have personally experienced to be true. Other people might not see it, but it doesn't mean, doesn't take away from your certainty and how true you know it to be. They might not be able to see it or understand it, um, but a, a man or a woman with an, argue, with an experience is never at the mercy of a man or woman with an argument. 
Once you have experienced certain things, you can say with boldness and confidence that I know this to be true, even if it doesn't make sense to people looking from the outside in. Uh, one of the best ways I know how to explain this is that this past Monday uh, marked nine years since my wife, Jessica's late husband, Jerron, passed away in a motorcycle accident. And Monday night, we sat down and we talked about Jerron and she told some stories and we went down memory lane and I was just asking her how she was processing uh, his life and uh, his abrupt ending and um, his death and, and kind of all of the things around Jerron. Now, one of the things that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people on the outside of our relationship is how frequently Jessica and I talk about our late spouses and yet simultaneously it's not weird at all. Be honest, some of y'all think that's kind of weird. Now, how could it be that you would spend time reflecting on your past love and still be able to be present in your current relationship? And I, I can't pull out a whiteboard and explain to you in calculus how it works, but I just know that it works. I know from personal experience that the heart has an amazing ability to expand and that you can easily, easily love and cherish someone that you were married to and passed away and easily be excited all the way, I mean, down to your, to your toes, super excited and present in the room about someone else. I have some really awkward stories, maybe I'll tell you at Church and Chill, of, uh, of how excited I was to be with Jessica when we first met. I have a horrible, horrible, horrible botched first kiss attempt. It was really, really bad. Um, thank God for grace that she allowed me to continue to date her. But, uh, I know from the depths of my soul how easy it is to love and cherish my late wife and to be fully present with my present wife. And here's, uh, even if you don't understand it, I know this to be true, so I can say it with confidence. Parents of one child, when, uh, if you get pregnant again with another kid, you're like, I don't know how I'm gonna feel about this other kid. I mean, I just don't know if number two is gonna be as exciting. And I'm a younger sibling, so I hope this is true for my parents. Uh, but I know it's true for me that when another child is born, the heart has an amazing ability to expand, and I can say with certainty that I know that you can love your second child, third, fourth, probably not the fifth because you're tired of kids at that point, <laughs> as much as you have loved the first one. And without that experience, you probably would lack that certainty. Here's what Paul is getting at. He is speaking from the other side of experiences that he has had, and he's saying, brothers and sisters, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. There's a scripture in, first, in uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 14, where Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul's job was to start churches in new cities. And the last place that you want to be if your goal is to start churches in new cities is to be locked up. So Paul is locked up Akon style, they won't let me out. And um, he's there, probably somewhat miserable that his life's purpose is being frustrated by the fact that he is now chained to a Roman guard. But what happens in Paul's life? There was one people group that Paul didn't quite seem to have an in with, and that was a Roman centurion. 
So now the world's most gifted evangelist is chained for eight hours at a time to a Roman guard. And now Paul is advancing the gospel, not in the way that he thought it was going to happen, but rather through one person after another, chained to him for eight hours at a time. And he says, what has happened to me, brothers, actually has served to advance the gospel. And he's saying the word actually here because in his mind, I'm sure he didn't see how it would happen. But now, the thing that he thought would not have any merit, the thing that he thought would not be valuable or a, a worthwhile experience, that was the very thing that God used in his life. So when Paul says, we know he is speaking from experience. And this is all throughout Scripture. Uh, the story of Joseph in the Bible was a story of great trials and great tribulations for him. Uh, Joseph uh, was a man who had great dreams for himself and what God was going to do in his life. God gave him a dream that he was going to be, uh, you know, just a, a, a ruler and uh, his brothers, his own brothers would bow down to him. And as it was unfolding in Joseph's life, uh, everything that happened, everything that happened was getting worse and worse and worse and worse, but it actually led him to the place that God had promised him all along. Joseph was sold into slavery. He has a horrible, miserable life for years and years and years. And then when he gets out of slavery, he finally makes it to the big house, and then he gets lied on and thrown in prison. Over and over and over again, God uses these crazy circumstances in Joseph's life to finally bring about the thing that he had promised. And there's a famous scripture in Genesis 50 and 20 where Joseph says, what you have meant for my evil, God meant for my good. When scripture says we know all things, I think in some ways they're trying to let us borrow some strength. They're trying to let us borrow from their life and collective experience the wisdom, the strength, the fortitude, and the certainty of what it looks like to have placed your faith in Christ and see him use these things, even situations that you could have never imagined, to be for your good. The certainty that you and I want in life will come on the other side of experience. Now, this is true with God and true of everything in life. Nobody who gets married is certain that the person that they're supposed to get married to is the right one. You have some hints, uh, and a lot of people have uh, uh, made some really painful mistakes in their life uh, thinking that this was the right person and uh, it dissolved for one reason or another. But what happens? After you commit, then comes the certainty that the person is definitely, or in some cases, is not definitely the person that you're supposed to be married to. Same thing is true with jobs. You can read a thousand resumes on ZipRecruiter, uh, and if you're hiring someone, you will only know that that person is the right person for the job after you commit to them. Certainty comes after the experience, and what Paul is speaking here from is the certainty that he has collected over the years. So, so Paul says, all, um, so we know, and he doesn't just stop there, he says, we know that all things, not just one thing, not just the things that I like, not just the things that make sense to me, but all things. Uh, you guys ever see that show, Chopped? Yeah, yeah right? Y'all watch Chopped? My wife and I watch Food Network and HGTV. That's the only thing we watch on TV. Yes. Although I don't really like the Island Hunters, you know what I'm saying? I don't just, it hurts my heart that they have that much money to spend on a bungalow somewhere. But anyway, on Chopped, they will give people these ridiculous ingredients. They will give them like Brussels sprouts and peanut butter and be like, yo, I need you to make a masterpiece. And the chefs, especially the ones who are really good, what do they do? They go back and they throw them joints in the, in the grill and they come out with like a miso crusted 
peanut butter reduction over the Brussels sprouts, and the judges are eating it like, yo, this is incredible. Now, only a master chef could use ingredients that, um, that uh, uh, um, conventional wisdom said should not be combined. But if you take a master chef, if you take a master artist, they can take things that don't seem to be compatible and make them work together. And when scripture is saying that all things work together, it's giving us a nod uh, to the fact that God is our master chef and he is creating a masterpiece with us. And God is not limited to what you and I think should be used in our lives to actually accomplish his job to make us more like Christ. God is not limited to our opinions of what needs to happen in our life in order to make us more like Jesus. Ephesians 2 and 10, a scripture we've spent some time in uh, a number of times, tells that you and I are God's workmanship. And in God creating us as his masterpiece, as his workmanship, he uses things that conventional wisdom says probably should not be included. Next part is really huge because it doesn't say that everything in and of itself is working for your good. It says that all of these things working together. Working together. Now, the, the mistake that we make is that you and I evaluate isolated circumstances as if God has promised that each situation will work separately. The promise that God is giving us in this scripture requires that you and I have the patience to allow it to come together. One of the things I've joked about at Renaissance that is a huge area of prayer for us is uh, we don't have enough gray hair in the audience. A lot of churches are trying to get younger. We're trying to get, I'm trying to get older. Um, I grew up at Shiloh Baptist Church in Yonkers, and um, there was something about when one of the older deacons would get up to pray. Sometimes they'd be praying, and they would just say a phrase that sounded mad regular, and then people would be in that joint weeping. They would sing a song, we've come this far by faith, trusting in the Lord, uh, trusting in his holy word, and then they would get to this line that he has never failed us yet, and you would see church mothers, the ones who pass you the breath mints, uh, and, and their purse have been there for 300 years. You would see them in there weeping. Why are they doing that? Because they have seen over the years that God had never failed them yet. Uh, what this means is that when something good or bad happens in our life, it would be wise for us to exercise patience, to say, God, I'm going to give you the time to work and create. If you've ever been around someone who really knows how to cook, if you come in the kitchen looking over their shoulder, what do they tell you? Get out the kitchen. Get out the kitchen. Some of us need to pray today, Lord, help me to get out of the kitchen and looking over your shoulder about what is going on in our lives. So God promises us that all of these things are working in our lives together. Bit by bit, piece by piece, these things are working. The scripture says something here that is really important. It says it works for the good. It does not say that each situation is good. It's saying it is working for the good. And God is, uh, scripture here is telling us, um, this is really important because this is not giving us a really happy, slappy, Christian-y, definition of good. And I think we need to redefine what good is here. A few weeks ago, we talked about expectations. And the most important thing that you can have in approaching God in your life is having the right set of expectations. 
And if what your definition is of, uh, is of good is different than what God's definition is, uh, you and I are likely to be disappointed uh, in what God is doing in our life. And the good that God wants to create is God wants to make you more like Jesus. Here's a really, really hard truth that um, it pains me to say because I've experienced it in my own life, and I, I have been experiencing it in, in recent ways, that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Uh, one, of the, one of the most powerful things that, uh, that I've taken from this portion of Scripture is in those moments saying, Lord, if you're going to conform me to the image of Jesus, then you might also teach me the same way that you taught Jesus. And that means that some of these things in our life that God uses, some of the circumstances, they're not the happy ones. They're also the challenging ones in our lives. Now, one of the other parts about this section of Scripture that God is working all things for the good, it doesn't say that God is working for your good. It says for the good. Now, there's a false dichotomy of does God want me to be happy or holy? Uh, I think God wants both. He wants your happiness to be found in being made more like Christ. But I think in America, we have a really, really, really individualized version of what faith should be. We have a really individualized version of what God should be doing in our life. So when we see a, scripture, we see a situation in our life, a lot of times the first question we ask ourselves is, how can this be for my good? I think that's the wrong question. The good that God wants to do in our life is not a singular, but it is a plural. God is not after creating a new person, but a new people, a community of people, a brand new kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And I would hope that I have the patience and the trust in my life to trust that God is working out things, not using me as a pawn, not forgetting about me, right? Because God does have a purpose and a plan for your life. Absolutely. God does know you. God knows your name. God has counted the very hairs on your head. It's easier to count for me than it is for some of you. But God has your personal good in mind, but God also has the good of his kingdom on earth in mind. And a lot of times when we're asking, our question, asking ourselves the question, how can this be good? It's because we're thinking about our personal bottom line and not what the mission is of God. Bad things can happen, but God works them for the good. And this verse does not promise us that those who love God will have better circumstances, but we will have a better life. That when you were to look back on your life, you would know that even though each one individually might not have lined up, that God has given us a better life. Now, the story of Jesus and Lazarus is a really interesting one. Um, when I think about how God responds to uh, 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 heartache and unfortunate circumstances and, and pain and suffering, uh, the story of Lazarus is a, a man that has died, and they call for Jesus. Jesus waits, takes his time. Um, uh, which is a good indication that Jesus was from the Caribbean because he took his sweet time to, to come. He's Jamaican. And when Jesus gets there, they said, Lazarus is dead, and he's been dead for four days already. And what is Jesus, what happens? Jesus tells them he is not dead. This has happened so that the God's glory might be revealed. And then right after this, Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and simultaneously he's weeping. What does this mean? It means that God is not trying to give us some happy, slappy version of our lives, of what it means to create things for the good, that God can simultaneously sit in your pain, sit in the ashes with you, and also have a plan for your good. So all things work for the good of those who love 
the Lord. Uh, we've talked about this a bunch in our teaching team, and uh, we've been thinking through what does it mean to actually love God? Or better question, what can create the love of God in your life? What can make you into a person that loves what God loves and loves God for himself, not what God can give you? And, and I think that's only found or best found in the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a message that announces what God has done in our life, and it shows us so powerfully how God can create good from situations that look absolutely horrific. One of those things is when Jesus first hit the scene, uh, and the question about him is like, yo, Jesus, this teacher, where's he from? Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? God uses foolish things to confound the wise. It doesn't have to make sense to us for it to be the best thing ever. Take that a step further, and you see in John 16, 22, uh, a familiar setting that we know oftentimes as Good Friday. And on Good Friday, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Uh, in advance of that, he says, So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away, uh, take away your joy from you. Jesus tells his disciples, uh, he gives them a number of predictions of what is about to happen in his life, and Jesus tells them the unthinkable, that even though you thought I was going to bring in this whole new kingdom, and you were going to sit on my right, you were going to sit on my left, and we were going to be shining together, they're actually about to hang me up and crucify me. My body is going to be naked and laid before everybody in embarrassment. And you have grief now, but this is working for your good, I promise you. In the gospel of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for us the proof that God can work the most beautiful circumstances out of the most mundane and horrific or unexplicable uh, methods in history. And what God is after in your life is for us to have more courage in what he is doing to produce the good in our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, I know that there are some people who are wrestling even right now with hopelessness of uh, how the next step is going to make sense in their lives, of just trying to make sense of everything going on inside of them. Father, I pray for uh, those people right now who are at a particular crucible uh, where they're trying to figure out, God, how is this going to work? I pray that they would have the patience to say, God, I'm going to trust you that this might not work by itself, but together, God, I'm trusting that you're working this out for my good. And God, I pray that we would be able to strengthen others and look back and give others the certainty of our experiences. Father, would your Holy Spirit confirm in us what you are doing, that you are with us, that you have not left us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.